Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 1 The Southern Retreat. Part 2. Harry Spirits had turned after his long sleep. He was a lad again. The weight of Gettysburg no longer rested upon him. The Army of Northern Virginia had merely made a single failure. It would strike again and again as hard as ever. It's true, we've been slumbering, he said. But we're as wide awake now as ever, Mr. Driver. My name ain't Driver, said the man. Then what is it? Jones, Dick Jones, which I hold to be a right proper name. Not romantic, but short, simple, and satisfying. I reckon so. Leastways, I never wanted to change it. I'm from North Carolina, and I've been following Bobby Lee a powerful long distance from home. Fine country up here in Pennsylvania, but I'd rather be back in them North Carolina mountains. You two young generals may think it's an easy and safe job driving a wagon full of ammunition, but suppose you have to drive it right under fire, as most often you have to do, and if a shell or something like that hits your wagon, the whole thing goes off kerplunk. And where are you? It's a sudden and easy death, said Dalton philosophically. Too sudden and too easy. I don't mind telling you that seeing men killed and wounded is a spot that's beginning to pall on me. Reckon I had enough of it to last me the next thousand years. I forgot if I ever knowed what this war was started about. Say, young fellers, I got a wife back there, a high-stepping fine-looking gal, not more than twenty years old. I'm just twenty-five myself. We got a year-old baby, the cutest was ever born. Now, when I was looking at that charge of Pickett's men and the whole world was blazing with fire and all the skies was raining steel and lead and where grass growed before, nothing but bayonets was growing then, you know what I seed sometimes? What was it? asked Harry. For a second, and all that hell and fire and smoke and killing would float away and I seed our mountain with the cove and the trees and the green grass growing in it and the branch with the water so clear you could see your face in it running down through the center and thar at the head of the cove my cabin not much of a building to look at no towering mansion but just was a stout two-room cabin that the snows and hails of winter can't break into and in the door was standing mary with her hair flying about her face and her eyes shining with the little feller in her arms looking at me way off as i was walking fast down the cove toward him returning from the big war there was a moment of silence and dalton said gruffly to hide his feelings dick jones by the time this war is over and you go walking down the cove towards your home a man with a mustache and side whiskers will come to meet you and he'll be that son of yours but dick jones cheerfully shook his head the war ain't gonna last that long he said confidently and i ain't going to get killed what i saw will come true cause i feel it so strong there ought to be a general law forbidding a man with a young wife and a baby to go to war, said Harry. But there ain't no such law, said Dick Jones, in his optimistic tones. And so we needn't worry about it. But if you two generals should happen to come along through the mountains of western North Carolina after the war, I'd like for you to come to my cabin and see Mary and the baby and me. Our cove is named Jones's Cove, after my father, and the branch that runs through it runs into Jones's Creek, and Jones's Creek runs into the Yadkin River. And our country is Yadkin. Oh, and you can find it plumb easy if two such great generals as you wasn't ashamed to eat sweet potatoes and ham and turkey and compone with a wagon driver like me. Harry saw, despite his playful method of calling them generals, that he was thoroughly in earnest, and he was more moved than he would have been willing to confess. 
Too proud, he said. Why, we'd be glad. Maybe a road of lead did that way, said Jones. And if you do, just remember the skillets on the fire and the lat strings hanging outside the dough. The allusion to the mountains made Harry's mind travel far back, over an almost interminable space of time now, it seemed, when he was yet a novice in war, to the home of Sam Jarvis, deep in the Kentucky mountains, and the old, old woman who had said to him as he left, You will come again, and you will be thin and pale and in rags, and you will fall at the door. I see you coming with these two eyes of mine. A little shiver passed over him. He knew that no one could penetrate the future, but he shivered nevertheless, and he found himself saying mechanically, It's likely I'll return through the mountains, and if so, I'll look you up at that home in the cove on the brook that runs through Jones's Creek. That being settled, said Jones, what do you two generals reckon to do just now, after having finished your big sleep? Your wagon is about to lose the first two passengers it has ever carried, replied Harry. Orderlies have our horses somewhere. We belong to the staff of General Lee. And you see him and hear him talking every day? Some people are powerful lucky. I guess you'll say a lot about it when you're old men. We're going to say a lot about it while we're young men. Goodbye, Mr. Jones. We've been in some good hotels, but we never slept better in any of them than we have in this moving one of yours. Goodbye. You're always welcome to it. I think Mars Bob is on ahead. The two left the wagon and took a path beside the road, which was muddy and rutted deeply by innumerable hooves and wheels. But the grass and foliage were now dry after the heavy rains that followed the Battle of Gettysburg, and the sun was shining in late splendor. The army, taking the lack of pursuit and attack as proof that the enemy had suffered as much as they, if not more, was in good spirits, and many of them sang their marching songs. A band ahead of them suddenly began to play mellow music, partant pour la salie, and other old French songs. The airs became gay, festive, uplifting to the soul, and they tickled the feet of the young men. A Cajun band, exclaimed Harry. It never occurred to me that they weren't all dead, and here they are playing us into happiness. And the Invincibles, or what's left of them, won't be far away, said Dalton. They walked on a little more briskly and beside them the vast length of the unsuccessful army still trailed its slow way back into the south. The sun was setting in uncommon magnificence, clothing everything in a shower of gold, through which the lilting notes of the music came to Harry and Dalton's ears. Presently the two saw them, the short, dark men from far Louisiana, not as many as there had been, but playing with all the fervor of old, putting their Latin souls into their music, and there are the Invincibles just ahead of them, exclaimed Dalton. The two colonels have left the wagon and are riding with their men. See how erect they sit? I do see them, and they're a good sight to see, said Harry. I hope they'll live to finish that chess game, and fifty years afterward, too. A shout of joy burst from the road. A tall young man, slender, dark, and handsome, rushed out and seizing the hands of first one and then the other, shook them eagerly, his dark eyes glittering with happy surprise. Kenton! Dalton! he exclaimed. Both alive! Both well! It was young Julien de Langay, the kinsman of Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hélier, and he too was unhurt. The lads returned his grasp warmly. They could not have kept from liking him had they tried, and they certainly did not wish to try. You don't know how it rejoices me to see you, said Julianne, speaking very fast. 
I was sad, very sad. Some of my best friends have perished back there in those inhospitable Pennsylvania hills. And while the band was playing, it made me think of the homes that they will never see any more. Don't think I'm effusive and that I show grief too much, but my heart is very heavy. Alas, for the brave lads. Come, come, Delenge, said Harry, putting his hand on his shoulders. You've no need to apologize for sorrow. God knows we all have enough of it. And a lot of us are still alive, and here's an army ready to fight again whenever the enemy says the word. True, true, exclaimed Elenge, changing at once from shadow to sunshine. And when we're back in Virginia, we'll turn our faces once more to our foe. He took a step or two on the grass in time to the music, which was now that of a dance, and the brilliant beams of the setting sun showed a face without care. Invincible youth and the invincible gaiety of the part of the South that was French were supreme again. Dalton, looking at him, shook his Presbyterian head, yet his eyes expressed admiration. I know your feelings, said Harry to the Virginian. Well, what are they? You don't approve of de Langay's lightness, which in your stern code you would call levity, and yet you envy him possession of it. You don't think it's right to be joyous without a care, and yet you know it would be mighty pleasant. You criticize de Langay a little, but you feel it would be a gorgeous thing to have that joyous spirit of his. Dalton laughed. You're pretty near the truth, he said. I haven't known de Langay so very long, but if he were to get killed, I'd feel that I had lost a younger brother. So would I. Two immaculate youths, riding excellent horses, approached them, and favored them with a long and supercilious stare. Can the large fair person be Lieutenant Kenton of the staff of the Commander-in-Chief? asked St. Clair. It can be, and it is, although we did not think to see him again so soon, replied Happy Tom Langdon. And the other, I do not allude to de Langay, is that spruce and devout young man, Lieutenant George Dalton, also of the staff of the Commander-in-Chief. Why do we find them in such humble plight, walking on weary feet on a path beside the road? For the most excellent reason in the world, Arthur. And what might that be, Tom? Because at last they have come down to their proper station in life just as surly as water finds its level. But we will not treat them too sternly. We must remember that they also serve who walk and wait. But St. Clair and Langdon, their chaff over, gave them happy greeting, and told them that the two colonels would be rejoiced to see them again, if they could spare a few minutes before rejoining their commander. And here is the orderly, with both your horses, said St. Clair. So, under the circumstances, we'll sink our pride and let you ride with us. Delangay, with a cheerful farewell until the next day, returned to his command, and Harry and Dalton, mounting, were, in a few minutes, beside the Invincibles. Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire turned their horses from the road into the path and saluted them with warmth. We caught a glimpse of you just after our departure, Harry, said Colonel Talbot, but we did not know what had happened since. There's always a certain amount of risk attending the removal of a great army. I am glad, Leonidas, that you used the word removal to describe our operations after our great victory at Gettysburg, said Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. I have been feeling about for the right word or phrase myself, but you have found it first. Do you think that was a victory, sir? Undoubtedly. We have won several vast and brilliant triumphs, but this is the greatest of them all. We have gone far into the enemy's country, where we have struck him such a terrible blow, and now of our own choice, understand it is our own choice, we withdraw and challenge him to come and repeat on our own soil our exploit if he can. 
It is like a skilled and daring prize-fighter who leaps back and laughingly bids his foe to come on. Am I not right, Leonidas? Neither Aristotle nor Plato was ever more right, Hector, old friend. Usually there is more to a grave affair than appears on the surface. We could have gone on, after the battle, to Philadelphia had we chose, but it was not alone a question of military might that General Lee had to decide. He was bound to give weight to some very subtle considerations. You boys remember your Roman history, do you not? Fragments of it, replied Harry. Then you will recall that Hannibal, a fine general, to be named worthily with our great Lee, so far as military movements are concerned, after famous victories over greatly superior numbers of Romans, went to camp at Capua, crowded with beauty, wine, and games, and the soldiers became enervated. Their fiber was weakened and their bodies softened. They were quicker to heed the call to a banquet than a call to arms, unless it was the arms of beauty, Leonidas. Well spoken, Hector. The correction is most important, and I accept it. But to take up again the main thread of my discourse, General Lee undoubtedly had the example of the Carthaginian army and Capua in mind when he left Gettysburg and returned towards the south. Philadelphia is a great city, far larger and richer than any in our section. It is filled with magnificent houses, beautiful women, luxury of every description, ease and softness, our brave lads crowned with mighty exploits and arriving there as conquerors, would have been received with immense admiration, although we are official enemies. And the head of youth is easily turned. The army of northern Virginia, emerging from Philadelphia to achieve the conquest of New York and Boston, would not be the army that it is today. It would lack some of that fire and dust, some of the extraordinary courage and tenacity which has enabled it to surpass the deeds of the veterans of Hannibal and Napoleon. But, sir, I heard the people of Philadelphia were mostly Quakers, very sober in dress and manner. Harry, my lad, when you lived as long as I have, you will know that a merry heart may beat beneath a plain brown dress, and that an ugly hood cannot wholly hide a sweet and saucy face. The girls, God bless them, have been the same in all lands since the world began and will continue on to the end. While this war is on, you boys cannot go according either in the north or south. Am I not right, Hector, old friend? Right as always, Leonidas. I perceive, though, that the sun is about to set. Not a new thing, I admit. But we must not delay our young friends when the general perhaps needs them. Well spoken again, Hector. You are an unfailing fount of wisdom. Good night, my brave lads. Not many of the Invincibles are left, but every one of them is a true friend of you both. As they rode across the darkening fields, Harry and Dalton knew that the colonel spoke the truth about the Invincibles. I like a faith such as theirs, said Dalton. Yes, it can often turn defeat into real victory. They quickly found the general's headquarters, and as usual, whenever the weather permitted, he had made arrangements to sleep in the open air, his blankets spread upon soft boughs. Harry and Dalton, having slept all day, would be on night duty, and after supper they sat at a little distance awaiting orders. Coolness had come with the dark. A good moon and swarms of bright stars rode in the heavens, turning the skies to misty silver and softening the scars of the army, which now lay encamped over a great space. Lee was talking with Stuart, who evidently had just arrived from a swift ride, as an orderly nearby was holding his horse covered with foam. The famous cavalryman was clothed in his gorgeous best, 
His hat was heavy with gold braid, and a broad sash about his waist was heavy with gold also. Dandy he was, but brilliant cavalryman and great soldier, too. Both friend and foe had said so. Harry, sitting on the grass, with his back against a tree, watched the two generals as they talked long and earnestly. Now and then Stuart nervously twitched the tops of his own high riding boots with the little whip that he carried, but the face of Lee revealed clearly in the light twilight remained grave and impassive. After a long while Stuart mounted and rode away, and Sherburne, who had been sitting among the trees on the far side of the fire, came over and joined Harry and Dalton. He too was very grave. Do you know what has happened? he said in a low tone to the two lads. Yes, there was a big battle at Gettysburg. As we failed to win it, we're now retreating, replied Harry. True, as far as that goes, but not all. We've heard, and the news is correct beyond a doubt, that Grant has taken Vicksburg and Pemberton's army with it. Good God, Shelburne, it can't be so. It shouldn't be so, but it is. Oh, why did Pemberton let himself be trapped in such a way? A whole army of ours is lost, and our greatest fortress of the West taken. Why, the Yankee men-of-war can steam up the Mississippi untouched all the way to the Gulf of Minnesota. Harry and Dalton were appalled, and for a little while were silent. I knew that man Grant would do something terrible to us, Harry said at last. I heard from my people in Kentucky what sort of general he is. My father was at Shiloh, where we had a great victory on, but Grant wouldn't admit it, and held on until another Union army came up and turned our victory into defeat. My cousin, Dick Mason, has been with Grant a lot, and I used to get a letter from him now and then, even if he is in the Yankee army. He says that when Grant takes hold of a thing, he never lets go, and that he'll win the war for his side. Your cousin may be right about Grant's hanging on, said Dalton with a sudden angry emphasis. But neither he nor anybody else will win this war for the Yankees. We've lost Vicksburg, and an army with it, and we've retreated from Gettysburg with enough men fallen there to make another army but they will never break through the iron front of Lee and his veterans. Hope you're right, said Sherburne. But I'm off now. I'm in the saddle all night with my troop. We've got to watch the Yankee cavalry. Custer and Pleasanton and the rest of them have learned to ride in a way that won't let Jeb Stuart himself do any nodding. He cantered off, and the lads sat under the trees ready for possible orders. They saw the fire die. They heard the murmur of the camp sink. Lee lay down on his bed of boughs. Other generals withdrew to similar beds or to tents, and the two boys still sat under the trees, waiting and watching, and never knowing at what moment they would be needed. End of chapter 1, part 2 Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado